You are listening to The Path Podcast on Mountain Bike Radio. Hello, Mountain Bike Radio listeners. Welcome to a new episode of The Path Podcast. Before this episode, there are two things that I want you to check out. That's all I'm asking. I'm not asking you to do anything else. Go to mountainbikeradio.com slash mulberrygap. That's M-U-L-B-E-R-R-Y-G-A-P. So mountainbikeradio.com slash mulberrygap. The other one is go to shopmbr.com. I've updated a lot of uh, different designs, several different hat designs, new shirts, uh, with plenty of options in terms of colors for each of those. So that's all I'm asking. Go to mountainbikeradio.com slash mulberrygap and shopmbr.com. That's it. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in. This is Nathan. This is Ock. And this is Tony. Welcome to another episode of the Path Podcast. And we are um, we're trying out something a little bit new here today. Uh, before we get into shop news, it's it's remote, Tony. Yep, I'm I'm reporting in live from well, not live for our listeners from <laughs> Eugene, Oregon, at my folks' house. It's pretty awesome. Um, I think we could have had a whole podcast if we would have edited out the uh, the the testing and the <laughs> and the, the sound engineering going on before. But uh, I think we got it, and I, I think you sound pretty good, Tony. Yeah, and it, it, it's good to have We're, it's good to have video of you too. It's great to see you guys' faces. <laughs> <laughs> I think yours is bigger than ours. <laughs> Because the, the, no. the camera ratio issue here. <laughs> exactly. Anyways, let's jump into some shop news here. Uh, on the suspension front, uh, we've got the 2018 Pikes and Lyrics uh, have come into the shop. And from what I can gather, the Pikes weigh a little bit less this year, a uh, tenth of a pound less, something like that, uh, than before. It sounds like they're trying to put a, if, if I'm reading things, sounds like they're trying to put the Pikes squarely in the squarely not squirrely squarely in the trail uh, aggressive riding and more get, differentiation from the lyric exactly. i think is what's going on yeah, yeah. i think an um, example of how that's working is the new pike 29 only goes up to 140 so like the old pike 29 you could put an air shaft in it and bump it up to like 150 or even up to 160 i 160, think 160 right was it really and, i thought the i thought the 29er pike maxed at 150 I, you know what? I, In any event, the new ones max at 140. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I actually sort of wanted to look into that because it, if I were to I'm, get a long tra- a 150 travel 29er, I could take an old bike and put a 160 air shaft in it, potentially. But I'm not sure that you could do that. But I read that maybe you could. Anyway, something to look into. Um, regardless, the 2018 29er Pikes, um, they've got a... A max of one. There is a Pike 29-160. There was. Now there's not going to be. Oh, okay. Got it. Now you'll have to get a Lyric. Yeah. Right. And um, I've, I've tried the Lyric out recently, although it's a 20... No, it is a 2018 because it's on Tawny's Nomad. Couldn't quite hear you there, Ock. So I have tried a 2018 Lyric, and that happens to be on your Nomad. How'd you like that? Man, that's... That I really enjoyed the, the it. lyric. Let's get into the nomad later, but since we're talking about the lyric, yeah. So, um, Tanya and I were talking a little bit about this. I, I, I felt like there was a little bit of tuning that needed to go on, um, before I felt like it would be matched up really well with the rear suspension, right? Which is kind of like the nice and realistic and wise way of saying you didn't, your first impression wasn't that great. I guess. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I when I first put the thirty six on my process uh, one fifty three, yeah, you know, I, it comes with the one fifty three came stock with a pike, and uh, I put a, a thirty six on it. And when I jumped on the the chunky gnar and some of the bigger um, aggressive stuff, 
that 36 felt really natural on that. Uh, on Here's the, the thing, though. I feel like the small bump sensitivity on that lyric doesn't feel very good. Mm. And I don't think it's an air pressure issue because I'm going through a lot of travel on it and kind of feels divey to me almost. So mm. I think I think I, I have a hard time believing that I'm not going to be able to get good small bump sensitivity out of that fork. And I feel like once I do, a lot of my complaints are going to go away. Right. Um, I, I think I can agree with you. And I, I think that might have to do with like what we had kind of talked about. Maybe you add, add a spacer, decrease the pressure a little maybe. That's my plan is to probably uh, shock whiz advice notwithstanding, which I have yet to – my, my, my plan might – change if i try the shock whiz but i suspect that the shock whiz will agree with me that i need to add a spacer or two add the spacer yeah that makes sense lower lower the pressure and add the spacer that yeah. gives you that some of that small bump sensitivity it is yeah. going to ride a little lower in the stroke G- given that i my complaints are bad small bump sensitivity and bad support through the mid stroke i think a spacer might or two might be the perfect remedy right that, right. Yeah, that seems to make sense. Yeah, because when I checked the pressure, it it had fifty, little over fifty psi in it. So I had, yeah, I had kind of expected to see maybe a little higher pressure in it. Right. It feels if you're used to a pike that 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 pressure, you're used to that feeling softer. I wouldn't be that surprised if we pull the lowers off that fork and there's no oil in there. <laughs> That, yeah, that's one good possibility. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not Sometimes that just happens off a factory line, and it's not just a rock shocks thing. Yeah, that that's something we were talking about earlier before the show started. Is that uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the forks um, straight from the factory, you know, they're dry when they start, and they just put in the prescribed Overfilled, amount. Underfilled, right? Assembly debris. Who knows? It's a good idea to do a lowers service and change the leg oil. Um, in any new fork that you get, you you can't go wrong with doing a kind of an early um leg service. No, and like it's in like the KTM manual. I think at fifteen hours to do a fork service. <laughs> yeah, if KTM says to do it, then <laughs> it's probably good for your mountain bike forks too. But actually, to that point, like almost any new fork that's been ridden a handful of times. Let us do a, a basic lower leg service on it, and it will feel a lot smoother. Because even if even just sitting in the factory, like like getting shipped across the ocean and then sitting in a warehouse, if all that adds up to maybe six months, like let your fork sit still for six months and don't cycle it, and then see how it feels. Right, and, and you'll see why maybe it's a good idea to do a little service on it. And there's tricks you can do too, like turn it kind of like sort of upside down and try to get some fluid to get to the seals and the foam rings and, and the bushings. And that can be really helpful and even just riding it. Right. But if there's not enough oil in there. That's not going to do anything. Yeah. You got to do something. Right. I've opened a lot of uh, OE forks and had the foam rings dry. Yeah. You can picture them going together in the, fa- well, like I say, first of all, you can, even if they get it perfect in the factory, just sitting between shipping and warehousing and then being in a shop, if all that, if it's like a, a month in the factory shelf and then a month across the ocean and customs and maybe it's hot and then a month in a warehouse somewhere and then a month at a retailer, like by the time all that happens, maybe it needs a rebuild. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A freshening up as it were. <laughs> yeah. I mean, needs a strong word. Maybe it needs that if you want it to feel super buttery. Right. 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 Where's that Betty Crocker sound? Um, so moving <laughs> along, we got some new pikes and the new lyrics. That yep. was a good digression. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I digress. <laughs> um, so with the, I don't know if you could even call this a, a reversal of direction, but um, many of you or maybe some of you out there have read that giant uh, in the 2018, in the model year 2018, is moving back to uh, some of their higher end bikes on the at least on the Anthem ra- um, line going to 29er. Man, that new Anthem 29 looks awesome. I really think so. I mean, as far as like a full on purpose built cross country race machine, the weights are competitive, the geometry is money. 
Um, so uh, I think it's going to be. Go ahead, Nathan. Oh, I was going to say. So um, uh, I was talking to uh, Brian yesterday, and one of the things that we had speculated based on the pictures was that this was going to be a race specific bike with a defuse seat post. And that's not correct. It's a 27 two seat post with internal routing. So you can run a 27 two internal routed dropper post on it, which I think really brought it in a much higher level in my, in my view. Yeah. Um, very light. I believe in the zero, like in the top level part suite, it's going to be somewhere around 20 pounds. Um, the, alum- the, the claimed weight, the weights that I've heard on the 3000 range, alum- $3,000 price range aluminum bike with carbon wheels is like 24 pounds or something. Yeah. Wow. An aluminum full suspension at 24 pounds. I think, I, I, yeah, we have yet to verify that on our shop scale, but I, it's going to be a light bike. That's great. It, it looks like a really great XC race weapon. Yeah. I mean, I see for 2018, the Spark 900 line and the Anthem 29s being our real purpose-built cross-country race offerings. It's kind of interesting that none of the boutique-ier lines like Pivot and Santa Cruz and Intense have a purpose-built cross-country race bike right now. Right, we had a we had sort of had a little brief conversation um, out at the Santa Ana River Trail, Nathan and Brian, Nathan and Brian and myself about. Oh, you're coming in real quiet for me. That's very interesting. I think I sound good to Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh yeah, we're we're still struggling with some of our sound, but it's it's getting there. Bear with us. So, just talking about how you know you mentioned that some of the boutique brands don't have that and it seems like santa cruz has moved to kind of that 110 travel right for their for their xc uh xc bike in the tall boy and, well i don't think they're trying to build the tall boy as a cross-country race bike yeah for sure i don't think so either none of them will admit it but you have to think that probably all three of the brands i've mentioned and a bunch of other ones are working on something because if you're a uh, if you're a bike brand that's trying to have a full a full line of bikes that addresses every mountain bike need, that would seem like the next choice for all three of those brands. Right, and and it, I was just riding. I just met some folks on the trail, and and one of them happened to be riding a uh, Santa Cruz highball, and that seems to be where Santa Cruz has gone. Right with with their with their cross country. Yep, pretty sweet hardtail. That it is. That it is. So, um, so, anyways, uh, should we maybe move on to other maybe types of bikes that are new in the shop? How about that Carbine Twenty Nine? Yeah, that's a pretty sweet looking bike. Um, yeah, I w- so I had I had kind of had an idea that this bike might be coming out. Um, there were some rumors floating around of a Twenty Nine er, and for some reason, I had it in my head it was going to be a One Thirty bike. And I was really stoked to see that Intense uh, made it a 155 bike. So I, I think they're on point with what's kind of popular right now. And and uh, it, was, it I was stoked to see that. Intense has long been on point with like long travel 29, I feel like. even Well, the old carbine, it still held, holds up pretty well. And that's a 160 fork on the new carbine. What the the travel you mentioned is the rear travel, right? Right. Yeah. So let's see what. Yeah, I mean that's um, that's a lyric coming on the twenty er just like the twenty to twenty eighteen. So they're moving again the clear clearer demarcation. You know what's interesting is I have I may have to recalibrate my understanding of bottom bracket height for these longer travel twenty nines because. All of them look really high to me on paper, but I guess maybe that's what you have to do to move a long travel 20 to keep a long travel 29 from getting like too stuck to the ground. Maybe. Possibly. How much higher are you seeing them? I I don't know the numbers totally. So the, the carbine is 13.7, 348 millimeters. Um, it just seemed, I mean, I know for sure you have to put it this way. If a nomad is like 
just over 13. Right. With 160 travel. Granted, you probably have almost the same bottom bracket drop on a Nomad at about 13 as on a as on a um, 29er at about 13.7. So maybe that's part of it is that they're more working off of a drop goal. It, it certainly could be. And to be honest, if I were working for... I think that makes sense. If I'm designing bikes... I'm looking at drop more than I am looking at height in terms of handling. That's, as far as like what speed the bike's going to come to life and like how hard it is going to be to go over the bars. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at the Norco Range 29er. That's the Norco's 150 uh, travel 29er. Uh, also comes in a 650 in a 27.5 version, but on their 29er. The Norco range has a 33-millimeter drop, uh, 340 bottom bracket height. So I think I did the calculation on that. It's like 13 and a quarter. So similar travel, much lower bottom bracket. What did you say the bottom bracket height is on the range? It's 340. So let me see, 340, it probably works out too. I, I thought I remember it being close to 13 and a quarter. So that's 8 millimeters lower than the carbine. Yeah, so that makes sense. That's significant. Yep, yep, yep. Well, thirteen three eight, yeah. So thirteen three eight uh, on a one fifty. That's more like what I would think I would want personally. Yeah, yeah. If not even lower. To me, one of the beauties of going twenty nine is getting that extra bottom bracket drop without starting to strike pedals. So for me, it's not like oh, go higher because it's twenty nine and get more, get the same drop. It's like oh no, go run at the same height, just barely skim every rock. And right. get as much drop as you can. Right, right, right. right, right. Yeah. But then again, that's going to contribute to that kind of, as Ock would call it, jealous girlfriend riding style. Which is, I like. <laughs> <laughs> Not saying anything. Can, can we can we recap the jealous girlfriend riding style? You so, want to do it, Ock, or do you want me to? I'll let you do it. I love how you tell it. <laughs> so it's the, 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 the basic concept is just the idea that if you're assertive and confident, then the bike rewards you with stability and loyalty. <laughs> but if you waver, like if you pull back a little bit, then the bike will slap you like a little bitch. <laughs> right. so you got to stay committed, right? <laughs> yeah. You have to show your commitment to the bike, and then the bike will show it back to you. Oh, it will give you so much love if you do. <laughs> <laughs> but the instant you stray, right, uh, you, you get pretty punished for it. You, um, and, well, and I think maybe a more a more um, kind of specific descriptor is you have, and this is going to be a foreshadowing of something that's going to come up in, a, in some listener questions and the new piv and the new transition geometry is. You cannot steer by turning the handlebars. You have to steer by leaning the bike. Right. Very much so. Very much so. And all of this started back with the, uh, if, you, if you guys have listened to some of our past uh, pod show, podcasts, uh, the, the custom path edition of the Ventana. Uh, oh, that's right. The path did invent low, long, and slack, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Along with the internet, but that's a different story. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's just a bunch of tubes. <laughs> but I that, mean, low, long, and slack is just a bunch of tubes. <laughs> I mean, that's where the jealous girlfriend uh, 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 moniker got coined. Was right. yeah. with the, with the... Uh, that was opt. So back when we came out with our custom Ventana that was lower, longer, and slacker than the current trail bikes at the time, um, Ock wrote it, and, and that was his comment. I said, man, the, you just got to stay committed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no messing around on that one. <laughs> and I bet this new carbine can be kind of a jealous girlfriend with a 65 and a half degree head angle and 29 inch wheels. Like you probably, you try to steer that probably if you're going down like a steep chute and there's a hard turn at the bottom and you try to like have your weight back and like make that turn by turning the handlebars, that bike going to probably stand itself straight up and you're probably going to not like overshoot's going to be. It's going to be like in that baseball movie when the guy's like, just a bit outside. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, so, 
Major League. Yeah. That was uh, Charlie I Sheen. That was yeah. <laughs> Rick Vaughn. <laughs> it's a good line. Yeah. Good line. <laughs> Rich with irony. <laughs> nice. Well, okay. So, are, are we? Uh, is that the official end of the shop? <laughs> <Show news? laughs> so yeah. So 2018 bikes and lyrics, intense carbine, and the 29er. Uh, anthem 2018 uh, all in stock uh or actually is the anthem in stock yet so yeah we have we have some 2018 anthem 29s in stock um we have an extra large advanced one and i think we have a couple of sizes of the aluminum bike and demos showing up any day too nice nice and we have carbines on the floor too yeah i've seen those carbines and we're doing this 2017 summer bike savings thing. It's going to end on July 9th. So those listeners who kind of didn't get a chance, maybe email us at the, at the pot, uh, the path podcast dot com right. podcast Pod- at the and ask us for a little rain check on the bike you're interested in that we have in stock from 2017. And uh, if you missed the, if you missed the deal, maybe we'll still give you the deal. Or if this show goes up quickly and you hear this before July 9th, come check it out because it's like, first of all, we're doing 22% off on all in-stock 2017 Giant bikes, which is, I mean, we have a lot of in-stock 2017 Giant bikes, and that's a crazy deal. And then all of our 2017 bikes in stock are discounted up to 22% off. So, big deal. Awesome. Awesome. So, check it out. and for, I mean, our listeners are savvy enough to know that what's going on here, um, the 2018 bikes are trickling in and in many of our customers' minds and our listeners' minds, the 2017 bikes are kind of already last year's bikes. And so we're not acting like it's not true. Yeah. And gosh, man, talk about the 2017 bikes, the, um, the giant um, you know, one of the things, so the, a great example of what, of what's exciting about 2018 and what also drives the deals on the 2017. So the giant trance two, one of our best sellers of all time, exactly where it's going. We sell so many trance twos and in 20, so at 22% off of 2,700 bucks, that's a crazy deal for a bike with SLX one by 11 and a dropper post and Fox suspension front and rear. And we're talking about, you know, 2106 plus tax, but the 2018, which we have in stock has wider bars, wider rims, a couple other little tweaks that are nice. I think it comes with tubeless tires now. And it's like, wait, mate, it's almost worth paying full price. Yeah. 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 So it's good to see a nice progression on the product and to have some good deals on on um, what is now kind of slowly becoming last year's stuff, man. And that man, that trance too. It almost makes me want to think maybe that's our test bike that we just, but we might. <laughs> oh yeah, the, <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I guess maybe the point of that whole thing is uh, maybe that's too sweet of a bike to even do that <laughs> I, on. We, yeah we just... i think the original te- the, the original test bike theory what, what what we were talking about is a quite a few months ago we were saying in what if we did a uh a really inexpensive bike we were going to say like thousand dollar retail was the price point and we would all buy that same bike and see how many things we could do with said bike uh go race it go ride it a ton and then report back what we could do with a thousand dollar bike. So that was kind of the idea we've been toying around it. I think the reality of, okay, so nothing wrong with a thousand dollar bike by any stretch of the imagination. Those it's bikes gonna, are great. And it's going to get you into mountain biking. It's going to be safe. It's going to give you, it's going to give yes. you a great time. Yeah. But we have all grown accustomed to <laughs> extremely expensive bikes right. by most measures. And, We've grown accustomed to that. <laughs> so it's, what's more... that thing where like you get used to it a little bit nicer and then a little bit nicer and then like all of a sudden the idea of going backwards is horrifying? I've heard it this referred is... to as lifestyle inflation, but uh, I think there's probably a more 
overarching yeah, philosophy. Yeah, there's lots of terms for it. Yeah. But I will say the trance too almost wouldn't be in the spirit of that experiment because no, and I think that's we would what, all be just right. a little too comfortable on it. <laughs> that's what Aqua is getting at is that bike is actually really sweet. Yeah. Um, and for that price, 2106, I mean. <laughs> that's that's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. So anyways, um, without sounding too much like shop homers, which <laughs> yeah. I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, do we, so Tani, do you want to do you want to start off with the so it's the transition announced their new geometry. Um it's the SBC what's that stand SBG? for? SBG. SBG. Yeah. Speed Speed Balanced Geometry. Speed Balanced Geometry. I was trying to think is this like a play on SBD, you know, like uh, so, <laughs> deadly but the gist of it is a little longer, a little lower and a little slacker, but the real innovation is forged with less offset. Okay, and we, and we've gotten a number of questions, uh, listener questions, a couple of them so far that are basically let's outline, like... Let's outline, yeah, let's outline it through these listener questions. I think that's a good idea. Okay. So, we've got Joshua. Joshua says, with the new transition announcement on their SBG Geo, and he has a link, and the advent of steeper and steeper seat tube angles. Okay, so I'm going to digress again. Remember when you guys, when I missed a show and you guys were talking to Brendan about how like effective seat tube is kind of like a, a black hole? Uh, yeah, it's it, d- depending on the manufacturer, effective seat tube is really only true at one point. So I, that's really a great point. And I think I kind of wanted to just. I have a little bit of an agenda here and it's that I want to add, I want manufacturers to add a metric to the measurement. So I want us to tell, I want them to tell us what height that effective seat tube angle is at. Right. Which, which is like, it's what Nathan said. It would remove all of the ambiguity and it would no longer be a black hole. Right. So manufacturers heads up. Like, tell us what height your effective seat tube angle is effective at, and then right. we'll know. Right. And if you could all agree on a height to measure it at, that'd be great. Right. And if someone wants to be a leader and pick a good height that makes sense to measure it at, like maybe 19 inches or something. How about 692 millimeters above the bottom bracket? Because <laughs> <laughs> that happens to be my optimal. Your, your How sat, about 691, your preferred which is my satellite? <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I think maybe more something that is um, just a number. Just pick a number. It doesn't matter that much. The point is that you turn it into a concrete thing that we could then effectively recreate. And and compare bike to bike to bike and actually understand where we are going to be relative to the spindle. That, right. That's the idea. Because with bottom bracket height, you can't remove tires from the equation. But with effective seat tube angle, you can make it an actual geometric yes. value. Yes, exactly. That can be described with only numbers. <laughs> <laughs> there is an answer to this question. Cool. So, okay, back to the question. I'm curious how this is impacting bike fitting. I would assume for an optimal bike, optimal fit regarding saddle position to bottom bracket, a rider's position on two different bikes with two different seat tube angles would be the same provided there was enough adjustment area on the seat rails. And that's a really good point. And I agree with that. And what he's saying, I think is that regardless of seat tube angle, I'm going to put my saddle in the same position over my bottom bracket on two different bikes. Right. With this being said, how would the steeper seat tube angle impact the rider? So I think the biggest thing is that a steeper seat angle makes a given top tube length into a longer reach effectively. Right. But I think what he's asking is, okay, so let's say you have your saddle is positioned in space above the bottom bracket for, for, for and aft it's positioned in some space and some new bike comes out and has a steeper seat tube angle. Um, and okay, but you're in theory going to keep your saddle in the same spot and the seat post is going to move around on the rails accordingly. And I, so I think there is, there's a couple of things going on is one is if you can't get the seat forward enough to achieve that ideal position 
or in this case, maybe back enough because what's going or on back, angles yeah. are getting steeper and steeper. Correct. But I think what part of what's going on with mountain bikes and people, you know, because in in theory, seat seat tube angle is a function of your body shape or your seat position is strictly a function of your body shape and it's a riding position kind of determined as the bike is level. But as for for me, for example, I think there's some freedom in that adjustment based on your application and these bikes are getting ridden up steeper and steeper trails to get to steeper and steeper downhills um, that some people are basically violating good fit practices on level ground to push their seat forward for steeper terrain. And okay, so I think that kind of addresses his next paragraph, which is, are the parameters for fitting changing? Are fitters putting riders in a more forward position, which I'm guessing would provide more torque on steep climbs, but less efficiency spinning in flatter terrain? So this this guy's questions are very well thought out and kind of almost whole, contain the answers. And we I think we generally agree. Yeah. All, all. Um I would say that, yes, riders have been moving a little bit further forward in some in many cases as seat angles got steeper. And, yes, that does favor a good position for steep climbing. There is an interesting other relationship here, which is as the seat angle gets steeper, it opens the hip angle. And as the seat angle gets slacker, it closes the hip angle. And... What that means is that if you move your seat forward, if your if your hip flexion limitation, which is also often a hamstring limitation, flexibility, hamstring flexibility, or hip flexor flexibility, if that's your limitation, as your seat goes forward, you could considerably you could conceivably run lower handlebars. And this is actually a concept that comes from tri bike fitting, where as as this. There's like a, a an established relationship between the movement of the fore afts on the saddle and the drop of the bars. Okay, that makes sense. So you're what you're trying to keep constant is the hip angle. In in well, in a, in many in many high level road bike fits, the fit a, a major element of the fit revolves around bringing the rider right up to their limitation on that hip closure because it provides good aerodynamics and also good power, because as you close that hip angle, I believe it allows you to fire your glutes better. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the goal is always to get that hip angle as close as closed as possible within the given physical limitations of the rider. Without having the rider's flexibility fight against himself. Yeah, there's a really common picture that you'll see in a lot of people's fit propaganda where you, it's a picture of someone holding a goniometer, an angle finder, up to like the it's it's measuring an angle from the rider's lower back to their femur, right? And 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 maybe earlier in the fit, that fitter has already established what that rider's limitation is in that angle mm-hmm. with a series of measurements, maybe on like a an exam table and a goniometer, right? That's how we do it, right? 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 Um. So that's what's going on there. And so if you're like in my bike, my bars are as low as I can get them without exceeding my, my hip flexion limitations, which are not as low as I would like to get them for, for handling on a downhill or for aerodynamics on a road bike or for lots of things. So like if I move in in theory, if I move my seat angle forward, I think I could lower my bars, which is interesting to me and still have that same hip and this goes to a previous discussion that we've had on the podcast too, which is like what is neutral with knee over pedal and neutral could change depending on how you're trying to rotate the bike, the rider around the bottom bracket. Right. right. And, and that's where like steep climbs and sagging suspension really play havoc on that relationship. And as far as, and as far as bike fit goes in terms of rider limitations, handlebar height. Right. Right, but yeah, I think overall riders are riding a little further forward on average now than they used to, but not all riders. Um, right, I I guess what I was getting at is the um, with longer travel bikes that get pedaled frequently. For I can speak for myself in this case, but a a really uh, long travel enduro bike that I intend to basically go steep trail hunting on 
So essentially, I'm riding it quite a bit, but most of the time it's to get up a steep trail to get to a steep downhill trail. Um, I will tend to want to slam that seat more forward for those climbing situations. I think you're reacting to the phenomenon where as you shift onto a steep climb, the weight shifts onto the rear suspension and you get more rear sag and, and less fork sag both at the same time which effectively sl- slackens your seat angle even more than the grade. Right. So you're, you're countering that by moving the seat forward, which is really, I think that makes perfect sense. Right. And I, I guess to, to the listener's question that the, the general question is, why are we seeing this trend? Why are people saying, Oh, the bike has a steeper seat angle as if it's a good thing almost across the board. We're seeing that as a, you know, toted as a positive thing quite often. And I think it's because people a lot of people may be finding themselves in this situation that's similar to where I'm at as these long travel bikes um, sag into their suspension and you want to get the seat farther forward more often than Yeah, not. you know what? It's also, though, because back in the old days, I think all the head angles were too steep. So you had to make the seat angle slacker so you wouldn't go over the bars. Oh, interesting. <laughs> that could be part of it. <laughs> and just to get the bike, the rider like properly balance between the two wheels right it's almost the opposite problem that a lot of riders have today so next we have nathan you have next we have nathan and i think nathan's going to bring us deeper into the new the new transition geometry listener listener nathan (laughs) yes correct listener nathan um hey team love the podcast i discovered it earlier this year in addition to listening to each one as it comes out i've been listening to the older episodes on mountain bike radio app Currently up to July 2016, from starting from the first one. As a fellow engineer and bike nerd, I particularly enjoy listening to your discussions of bike geometry, the properties, implications, performance differences, etc. that various aspects of frame and suspension design bring to our riding experience. In that vein, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on Transition Bike's new concept of speed balance geometry. It sounds me like they've gone with a fairly contemporary longer lower slack regime but have also reduced the fork offset substantially from the current 29er standard of 51 millimeters down to 42 or 44 with some sources hitting at even smaller offset numbers like 37 so this shorter offset thing is really interesting to me because the reason it's interesting to me is because when I read it, it was a fresh idea and I had to think about it. And I, and it's been a while since a manufacturer has introduced a geometry concept that was like, Oh, Whoa. Mm -hmm. And I think something that's really interesting about it is, so as you reduce that offset, you're going to increase the steering trail. It's kind of counterintuitive. It's actually really counterintuitive because you know, you're tucking the front wheel closer in under the rider. And at the same time, from a steering trail perspective, you're making the bike corner slower. In other words, when you turn the handlebars, less happens. Right. So, but on the other side of the coin, you've shortened the wheelbase, which quickens steering, especially from a perspective of leaning the bike over kind of steering. Right. So my read on this, and I'm really excited to try it, is that it would increase what Ott calls the jealous girlfriend effect, where if you try to like get back and steer with the handlebars, it just nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But it would also maybe as increase the payoff of riding it like you mean it. So you, because now you have a right. shorter wheelbase that's going to be more responsive when you do really lean it over hard. For lack of a better way of putting it, it, this bike, as far as leaning into the bike and committing into turns, it's going to be hard to ever exceed that. To, so to overcommit to a turn, over lean up on the front, it's going to be hard. It's going to have a very generous window for you to get very aggressive with the front of the bike. On paper, that's what I think. All, and at the same point in time, having a shorter wheelbase that's easier to like flip through a weird tight turn or like... And right. also, for that matter, do like a 360 or a backflip. Not that I would ever <laughs> try that. Right. Nice. So, but you uh, see, but you see what I'm saying, right? Like right. that shorter wheelbase is going to rotate better through any of those sorts of things. Correct. And and just so listeners are clear, 
Um, basically, what we're anticipating is you're going to want to buy the complete bike from Transition because they are going to be specking um, offsets that potentially are, are available or only ordered by them. The bike is designed to work with the f- fork that it's provided with. So now, that being said, if you run a normal fork on it, you're still going to have one of the better, lower, longer, slacker bikes on the market. Absolutely. It's not like the bike's not going to work with a normal offset. You're just not going to get the added added handling dynamics that that shorter offset provides. Right. And who knows if everyone's going to like that. Like, we have yet to find out if we even like it. But it's to me, it's just really cool to see someone trying something so different. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and you know, those guys are all shredders. They they know how to ride up there, and I think that's been evident by the bikes that they put out. And um, they're definitely trying it and trying to make the bikes go fast. Yeah, and when you can go fast with your tongue in your cheek, yeah. like, <laughs> just try not to bite that tongue off. <laughs> exactly um i'm looking forward to it i mean i think all the listeners know i have a couple of transitions now i i really like them um i i also like santa cruz's i like kona's i like giants i think a lot of the manufacturers make great bikes i particularly yeah, if our re- listeners know that you're a transition fanboy <laughs> I am a bit of, i'm trying i'm trying to carefully dodge around that point but yes Yes, I kind of want the new one. I think it's okay. It's okay, Nathan. And if, <laughs> and if you're going to be a fanboy of a brand, like it's a, it's a solid choice. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you all approve. Um, but yes, I do have my my eye carefully watching when that bike becomes available. And, and what we're talking about is the new long. The I think it's going to be called the Sentinel, and it's a 150 Travel 29er from Transition. I would, I of bikes I would be really curious to ride. It's very close to the top of my list, if not at the top of my list. Maybe that and Jack Moyer's custom twenty nine er downhill bike, if it ha- if it weren't too big for me. Yeah, for sure. Man, so there's no rumors on when that new transition is coming out. Although we, did I heard see the fall, the fall. Yeah, the information I saw was the fall which is very general <laughs> fall of 2017 yes yeah this this coming fall can we change gears a little bit i think we skipped over something we wanted to talk about yep. yeah what's up Ocro the nomad oh, oh that's yeah, right i did and i noticed that you might have rode the nomad too before i got it i rode the nomad um i went up willow and down tna just a quick ride it was awesome great day the Nomad climbed way good for a 32-pound bike with that much travel. Like, I would say 32 pounds is the worst thing I could say about how that bike climbs. And so, and just to be clear, you guys have both ride the same Nomad with, yeah. with yes. the coil rear shock. Yes. And then on the descent, um, it definitely came to life at a high speed. It did not want to be tooled around. The rear suspension was insanely plush, like downhill, like plusher than many downhill bikes that I've ridden. Like we've talked about earlier in the show, I feel like I need to tune that fork in more. Part of it might be just how plush the rear suspension is, like making everything else look bad. Yep. Um, Ock? Yeah, and I would would add to that, I feel like that, what is that, 170 rear, 170 on the rear travel? Yep. Yeah. That at 170, it didn't feel as deadening as some some um, downhill bikes. It still, right. to me, felt like it had as pop to it. You know, right. what I mean? that being said, though, while I sort of agree with what you're saying, I feel like the downside of that bike is less how good it climbs and more like. Like having ridden the Bronson and the and the new Nomad close to each other, the Bronson climbs a little better than the new Nomad, but really it's more about like how much input do you want to have to have to like manual it and flip and like pick the front wheel up and move it and stuff like that. Right. Like I feel like that's a bigger trade off than the climbing, which I think is a testament to Santa Cruz pulling off like the bike does what it's supposed to do. It climbs as good as it could possibly climb, and it's like 
more like a downhill bike in a significant way than a Bronson. Right. Because I think, you know, TNA can get, you know, decent high speed and decent chunk. But I think where that, where the Nomad is going to differentiate from the Bronson is not on TNA. Probably. I think I could go faster down TNA on the Nomad than the Bronson. Agreed. Agreed. Um, but if you're down a bigger, burlier trail, I think that's where the Nomad is going to start to separate itself and feel yeah. like, like oh, yeah. this is where it's supposed to be. Right. Yeah. I'm going to excuse myself for two minutes. You boys have at it. <laughs> so I would agree with with everything that Tony's saying about the Nomad. I had a chance to ride it, got it out maybe three times, maybe, I don't know, out, of, out in the three rides probably got, six or seven thousand feet of descending on it oh nice so you know every time i got it out i pedaled around for an hour and a half or so and so yeah i think that's um and um i do think that getting it out on um whether it be a park ride or whether it be uh <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> or or some of the bigger mountain rides i think that's where i'm i'm really excited to get that nomad out on on those yeah um you know so so one of the things i i've always been a fan of for a good number of years is is coil over suspension i've always felt like um a coil rear shock had a had a capability that just couldn't couldn't be matched with with an air rear shock and so that being said, I've I've had kind of a bias towards coil rear shocks for a really long time. Um, even at one point, I think, geez, like ten years ago or so, I had a Turner Flux four inch travel bike with a. I put a coil on uh, the back because I just love uh, the performance. Of I'm it. back, guys. Was that a Romic you had, Nathan? Uh, no, actually, on on my it was a Turner Flux, and I had I think it was just a really small Fox vanilla r coil over on the back uh, the so, reason i bring it up is because back then one of the like classic path setups with a was a turner with a romic right right it um no this one i had just a little fox coil over on the rear um and i so okay that being the case i've always thought that a coil over rear shock can make any bike feel amazing and so I'm really curious to see if you guys at some point can ride a Nomad with the um, the coilover and the air, right. and see if you can can notice a difference and and what yeah. percentage of that I'll, plushness is the coil. I suspect though too that if you rode like a Vivid Air, Nathan, uh huh, you might with your eyes closed wonder if it was a coil. Got it. Like that's a really different air shock. Yeah. Yeah, and I I. I I agree, and I I my the Nomad that I had before uh, had the Vivid Air, and I thought that was a pretty impressive air shock. With that said, the coil is is something else. Yeah, it's well, no one's no one's going to argue the fact that air seals add stiction, and also that an air spring adds added variability on what heat does to the spring rate. Like, there's just yeah. no way around those two facts. I don't think. Right. It it was hard for me to finally warm up to the idea that I think the pike was the first air fork where I was like, okay, I can deal with this air fork. Right. And well, you kind of had to because there was really no coil fork on the market for quite a while. I yeah, I think while I was looking that the, I think even to this day the only coil fork might be a an X fusion, something like a vengeance X fusion vengeance or something that's a coil over that's twenty seven five compatible, but even that is kind of a old fork in their lineup, right? And they have newer twenty seven five specific forks um, that uh, supersede that. So, um, anyway, so I, I'm really curious what what percentage of the plushness you guys are feeling could be the coil, and right. and we're also seeing the trend go this way in general. We're seeing a lot of enduro race bikes get coils. Uh, I'm seeing more and more bikes have coil rear options on the longer travel side of and you know and i'm gonna go out on a limb and guess that between my experience on an old nomad and my experience on the new nomad the difference in plushness 
is twenty percent the rear shock. Okay. Yeah. I'm just totally I'm just totally shooting I like, blind. I like yeah. that percentage. Just yeah. pegging a percentage. I like it. Right. Nice. And so I'll agree with Tawny as well. The climbing the nomad climbs really well. I again I'd like to get that bike out um to the San Gabes where you know you you get you know, on a on a really big day, you might get eighty five hundred feet of descending, and maybe you know five thousand feet of climbing or something like that. Uh, and so there's yeah, that might be a lot of climbing on that bike. It would be interesting to see. Yeah, yeah. But I think the San Gabe is a really good example of a place where it might be nice to have something that turns a little tighter and handles those traverses a little faster. Right. True. Like like you enjoyed being there on your fifty ten. Yeah, I think the San Gabes are really tight. It's hard to get like that. More so than, say, TNA, I think, the San Gabes are hard to get wide open for very long. Yeah. I, until it gets until it smooths out on, like, Sunset of the Merrills, and then it's, like, too smooth and flat for a nomad. Yeah, right. Exactly. I, yeah, I totally um, agree. You guys want to hear about some organ riding that I did recently? Yeah, yeah. I would. That'd be great. So I'm here in Eugene. And um, I connected with this guy, Tom. You guys would like this guy. He's this Australian guy. Like the first time I meet him, we're meeting up for a ride. My brother introduced me to him on text. We're meeting up for a ride. And he rolls up and he's talking to someone on the phone. And he's talking like, oh, so she's two centimeters dilated. And and she's effaced so much. And I'm like, what? What? This guy's talking to his wife and she's in labor or something? (laughs) And like... It turns out his wife is not in labor. She's just back from, from a checkup at the OB and, and, uh, and like, she's going to go into labor any day and she's letting him go out for a ride, which I thought was pretty cool. But, uh, so he takes me out and I thought all the good riding was like more like an hour outside of Eugene. Um, but it turns out there's a bunch of really good riding, like half an hour outside of Eugene out by like, um, uh, like, the Dexter Reservoir, I think it's called. Um, we what we ended up doing is we um, did the out and back up to Eagles Crest and came down um, the Lost Creek Loop, and um, it was rad. It was all under the trees for the most part, and you climb about twenty two hundred feet of elevation over the course of probably like ten miles or so up to this high point where you can see Mount June and like the whole Willamette Valley. And then the descent is like, it's like a two hour climb. And then the descent's like 45 minutes or so. And it's super fast and flowy. And there's a lot of like come around a turn and like kind of float over like a, a fallen log or like a log, a tree stump, or you can go slow and go around it. But like, at like good speed, you're going to like hit a little pre jump and bounce over it and land on a transition down the trail a little bit. Or like maybe there's going to be like a, two rollers that you could that you could like manual or just ride over or turn into a double there's a lot of that kind of like fun little stuff and it's just on like seriously 45 minutes of like high speed flowy fun under the trees in the shade lots of like decomposed pine needles and stuff and then through like creek beds super fun can't wait to get you guys up here and show it to you that looks looks awesome and uh i'm i just googled it and looking at some of these pictures that people have and posted. it smells like blackberries the whole time. Oh, oh, man. Nice. The air is just, like, rich with the smell of blackberries. Oh, man. Let, let me ask you this, and, and this is something we've kind of asked, um, you know, bike companies about their location and what have you. What What are you seeing as some of the fundamental differences between, like, our Southern California riding and riding there and maybe how that would reflect towards, like, bike choice and bike setup? This trail in particular the duration of the downhill compared to the duration of the climb was like a really favorable ratio where like, it's like a good, maybe hour and hour and 45 minute climb. And then like a good 45 minute descent where I feel like in SoCal, a lot of times you climb 45 minutes to do like a 15 minute descent or even less sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I was or, say. Yeah. Maybe you climb like an hour and 45 to do like a 15 minute descent like, Tr- truly, yeah. or less. Yeah. Yeah. So, that was really kind of refreshing and cool. Like they're really getting a, the, the, this trail really gets a lot out of the, out of the elevation change, a lot of speed, a lot of duration. 
And like we've referred to on previous podcasts, a lot of frequency and duration of bumps, which maybe like maybe a little softer fork setup. <laughs> like, right. So what uh, was the downhill at like a, cause a lot of the downhills we have are super steep. So yeah, so there were steep, there were sections that were steep enough to get that really good acceleration, but there were no sections where you felt like you needed to like get on the brakes and control your speed really, unless it was to slow down a little bit for a turn. Okay. So with that being said, I feel like that's part of why you would run a little softer fork. Cause I think part of, like if you run too soft of a fork in SoCal, when your weight shifts way forward on a really steep descent, it just dives too much. Right. Right. So, I, was gonna I just say, don't see as much of that here, maybe. Although, you know what? I can maybe I'm just like that person who like rides like Aliso and rides like Mathis Rocket and Lynx. And it's like, I don't know why everyone says this place is so steep. Right. <laughs> right. You know. Right. 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 I've only gone I've only ridden really one this one trail in that area. So who knows. But I will tell you as far as like epic like as far as like get, go get a good ride in and ride as long as you want and have good rad fun single track for all the descents. It's like as much as you want. Like from where I was you can pedal across to June Mountain and do Lawler and these other single tracks that he was saying are even better and even gnarlier and longer and so Right. There's lots out there. And then that's halfway to Oak Ridge. Oak Ridge is supposed to be a really great riding spot that I haven't even gotten to yet. It's like an hour from here. Um, you know, I, I guess kind of comparing that to the trails we have in Southern California that I ride all the time and have come to get used to, I'd, I'd almost say like, you know, we just plummet elevation on our downhills a lot of the time. A lot of the trails we ride are just dumping elevation well and a lot of the trails we ride are old forest service trails that are actually looking for like a fast way down and not (laughs) looking for like the fun way down for a mountain bike right and and i guess uh part of the reason i ask about you know the how bikes affect other areas i'm always kind of curious is um i i remember hearing the story that uh someone from kona had visited the shop and you guys had to do quite a bit of explaining why bikes were set up the way that they were here. And and they were kind of scratching their heads a little bit going like, oh, well, why do you do this? And why do you do that? And and once we, ex- you know, once it was explained, I think Luke was telling me the stories. Once he explained kind of the terrain and stuff, it suddenly became made more was sense. Was it like to tire that. choices? Or I don't remember that. I You know, I... I I don't remember all the details, but I, I think it was someone from Kona and this was a good number of years ago. And, um, they were just curious why they were seeing kind of a distinct setup for, for bikes. What I will say is like when I, what I, a couple of my thoughts are, yeah, I could see my bike setup being tweaked a little bit if these were my local trails, but I think overall, not that much. And like the guy I was riding with, he was riding it. He had, he had a, um, he had a new, I think, a new YT. But, mm. like, it looked set up like how we set up our bikes pretty much. Like, right. there's nothing about it that jumped out at me as weird. And right. when I go ride with the people up in Kona, like, they run a lot of the same tires and bars and grips and, and, and lever positions and everything that we do. A lot of them. Right. I, maybe one of the things that I that pops up more around our area is super small chain rings on the one buys. Yes. That... That we do have, although I think you'll see that in Colorado and certain par- parts of Oregon and Washington, too. I mean, I'll tell you, there were some, as as Tom, the guy I went riding with, would have said, there are some pinchy little climbs on this trail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> nice. He's funny. He, he When he says pinchy, I think he means like you feel the pinch or whatever. Right. But every time he said it, I was picturing like a Mexican guy saying like, oh, pinche climb. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was wondering. <laughs> like, I think that's maybe Spanish for the F word or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Lost in translation. Pinche and pinche are different. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty great. So, yeah, so sounds like some great writing in Oregon. Man, I would love to get up there, too. Um, hopefully, yeah. hopefully you get, you have the chance to do some more riding up there before you come home. Yeah. I'm going to go on at least one more ride. I'm going to try to hit Ashland on my way home. 
Oh, nice. Um, It'll be great to hear about that. I'm going to try to hit Oak Ridge before I leave. And there's some other riding areas that I want to come back and check out. So you guys are going to have to join me. Very cool. Sweet. Very cool. Yeah. Hey, um, I'm about to run out of batteries on my phone and I can't charge it because the, uh, that, that hole is being used for my microphone. Oh no. <laughs> Fatal flaw in the iPhone seven. <laughs> how, need one of those how long splitters. have we been recording? Uh, we're an hour in. So I, I say, you know what, for now, I think, uh, with having you remote, I think we've got, uh, got a good show for people. Pretty, pretty good test of the concept. Yeah. Um, we still have a few more minutes if you guys have any like last thoughts or questions or comments or anything. Um, you know, I, I think we were going to, we were going to talk about major Ben's question, but I think Let's we try to hit that one on the next show. Cause that's, I think that's if a, it goes that, 10 minutes. I might just disappear. Okay. And, and his question is, we will get to that question. It's about getting riders into the sport. And I think that's going to lead to a, a much bigger conversation, but um and Jesus we, H Christ Major Ben we'll get to your question. <laughs> <laughs> um I guess real short note uh one thing I mentioned to Ock um so yesterday on the 4th of July um had the day off Brian from the shop had the day off a big thanks to Brian uh he let me tag along and we uh, hiked Mount Whitney and, Awesome I'd love to do that someday Um I'm pretty shelled today I was uh really shelled at the end of yesterday um really cool experience um we on the way back down because there was still so much snow on the mountain we ass slid a thousand vertical feet that we didn't have to hike down and so we uh slid down that with and dragging ice axes to control the slide Uh, did you do the mountaineers route or the other or the other way we did the hiking route but it was pretty augmented due to the amount of snow Uh, and so we were actually cut a lot of mileage out of the normal loop and especially ass sliding a thousand feet or i guess it's called glaciering i think is the glissading yeah glissading that's (laughs) glissading i'm sorry um but i call it ass sliding because we (laughs) that was awesome ass sliding of uh of terror and death with an axe that i poked myself pretty good with <laughs> i call it nathan cut the course <laughs> nathan for sure cut the course um but i mean amazing day if you ever get a chance to hike some of those big mountains in the eastern sierras pretty awesome and again big thanks to brian um he could have gone significantly faster without me in tow but it, it was a great experience and and uh, that's the story of brian's life though <laughs> exactly there are very few that keep up with that guy bike bike or on foot but uh did he carry that sombrero with him by the way no the sombrero okay so there was a we posted a picture on instagram brian had a big sombrero the sombrero is up at the at the hut at awesome. the at, on the peak awesome. and he's like hey i gotta get a picture of sombrero and i was like okay give me the as long as I don't have to get up. <laughs> I was so exhausted at the top. Well, and to Nathan's to Nathan's credit, his like you know, Nathan or Nathan going slower or Brian slowing down for Nathan was them doing the equivalent of twenty two mile hike basically in nine and three quarter hours. Which yeah. a lot of people a lot of people do that anywhere from twelve to eighteen hours. Uh, it takes right. them. A lot of right. people wish that was their PR. Exactly. <laughs> it was it, it was a it was a tough day though. I uh I got some cheap trekking poles from from Walmart and they held up except I I slipped on a rock face and tried to catch myself and broke one of the poles pretty. <laughs> so I'm glad I only spent eighteen dollars on oh, the man. trekking poles. Awesome. <laughs> I just thrashed at least, them. At least the fork wasn't mounted backwards on your trekking pole. <laughs> oh, <man>. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it, it was it was cool. It was a it was a great experience. Um, I'd never been up hiking. I, you know, I'm I'm curious. This is probably a philosophical question, but at what point does that does hiking switch to mountaineering? I, I, I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, but I think you could say you did some mountaineering. I I, I think there was some maybe that there was some. You might maybe you need to use either snowshoes or an axe or like some ropes before you can call it mountaineering. I did use the the axe and i think the axe is 
considering that's on the doors of most REIs, that's the thing that opens the door. I felt the, I was like, this is awesome. This is quite a uh, iconic piece of mountain equipment that I have with me today. Well, and if you had to use the axe to self-arrest to keep yourself from plummeting to your death down a thousand folks, <laughs> I, I would consider that mountaineering. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I, I wouldn't have died down this slope, but I would have been screaming in terror like a little girl the whole way down <laughs> to ass slide a thousand vertical feet <laughs> i mean you probably would have maybe mangled yourself at the bottom of that i yeah it's <laughs> i think it had a pretty good snowy run out but uh yeah th- there was a rock at the bottom so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was a it was a it was an awesome experience great great way to uh probably obviously the most memorable fourth of july i've ever had man that's <laughs> awesome that's a good story right there. Yeah. So it was Let's end it on that. Listeners, if you want to have an awesome fourth of July, go do a great hike. Climb a climb a peak. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it was it was pretty sweet. Um Well, uh anything else, guys? Nope. I think I'm good. Alrighty. For Nathan and Ock, this is Tony saying love the bike you ride. Right.